Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, we're continuing this morning in uh, the last message in a really uh, short six-week series on C.S. Lewis on the Christian life. Uh, We've uh, covered several topics. I've talked to many people that have picked up C.S. Lewis books and tried to read them and enjoyed reading them and some have tried to read them. Uh, there, are, there is one kind of uh, interpretation, anthology, or rewording of C.S. Lewis that uh, comes in this book by Joe Rigney on Lewis. And uh, I will make sure there's a copy of that in the library. I've read that a couple of times. It is great book and helps when reading Lewis, actually. Uh, But one of the things that uh, I have hoped in this series is that we gather and gain some new thoughts, new perspectives on the Christian life. We're, We're always seeking to understand God's will and purpose for us. And Scripture is the primary way that we gain that knowledge. We understand what God is doing in our lives. Uh, There are believers that come around and explain things and talk about things in Scripture. And so we have been using some of the thoughts of Lewis to help us understand some of the grand themes of the Bible. Uh, We have, in this short series, looked at how we view God. We looked at divine pretending, uh, God's love. We've looked a couple weeks on the principles of prayer and the challenges of prayer. But today we're going to tackle a topic that, you know, is on one hand very glorious and fun and on another hand difficult, and it's heaven and hell. Uh, I'll bring up heaven and hell because uh, these two concepts were so important to Lewis. Both of them he affirmed. I would say that he spoke more of heaven. Um, all of his stories, his uh, fantasy stories, even the uh, dialogue between the demons about how to trip up Christians ends up with these glorious pictures of heaven. The last battle, even in the Narnia series, is uh, an astounding picture of heaven. Heaven played prominently in Lewis's writings. None of his writings really skip it or neglect it. Hell also played, not quite as prominently, but as important. Because Lewis would say that being a Christian and understanding the gospel can't be fully grasped without an understanding of our eternal destinies. And those two eternal destinies are either heaven and hell. Now, our views on heaven and hell, especially hell, has been challenged in our day. It is true that if you ask people in our culture who are affiliated with Christianity or even just kind of name the name of Christianity, hold to a view of heaven, 85%. 70% say that there is hell. If you go to the unbeliever, not necessarily a Christian, 
we have the belief in heaven at 37% and the belief in hell at 27%. Heaven and hell have a large variety of interpretations, even amongst Christians. It is heaven that is the great place that people will go to when they die. Hell is the bad place that really bad people go to and most of the time that doesn't include them you know that's that that is for the notorious sinner of course unless you offend them they might wish you to go to hell but you know there are some prominent reasons why people hold these different views on heaven and hell first all if people believe in god they usually believe in God as a loving God. And that certainly is something that we believe in. We believe in a loving God. The big problem, though, is that it is divorced from a, a picture of God that he is painting of himself in the Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, we're not just reading history or dry information or just theology. We're, well, we are reading theology because... Theology is your ideas about God. Uh, what we find in the scriptures is a picture of who God is. And sometimes when people think of heaven and hell and they think that God is loving, that they think of their best intentions, their best experiences. And usually those are in loving relationships and those loving desires for someone else. And then they think that God is just those things and they extrapolate and magnify their best intentions, best desires onto God as a loving God. But that's not a biblical understanding. We have to understand some things about God as he has presented himself in the scriptures. So that's one difficulty. Another difficulty is in our culture that some of the complementary truths that we learn about God in the Scripture are not part of the picture of God that we affirm. You see, we distort our view of God if we deny that God is creator. He is over all things. And if he is over all things, is he, if he has brought everything into existence that exists, then he can command respect and honor and response from his creation. And he can do with his creation as he determines. That makes it hard to believe in heaven and hell if you deny that. If you deny that God is holy and upholds right and wrong and has moral standards of what is right and wrong, then you have struggles hanging on to heaven and hell because they are reflections of that character. If we deny the character of God's wrath and anger against sin, which is certainly a predominant picture of the Bible that we learn about God, we have difficulty then with the ideas of heaven and hell. Therefore, is it any wonder that we have in our loss of a biblical context, change our view of what God will do in terms of heaven and hell. And when we talk to people about heaven and hell, most of the time, many times, we're on a different 
plain. Therefore, heaven and hell get sanitized, democratized, and sentimentalized. For all of us believers, this danger impacts us as well. So the topic of heaven and hell, as hard and as difficult and challenging as it is, it is so important, we must be willing to grapple with it. Years ago, Andrew Greeley ran a survey on a pool of people and found that three-fourths of people said that they prefer to think of God as a friend rather than king. I wonder if you were to change the question... And what, I wonder what the percentages would be if the option was friend or judge. Today, we are not as clear as we should be about the realities of heaven and hell. We think that they'll just work themselves out some way and somehow at the end of time. When we look at Lewis, he warns us against this kind of muddled thinking. He wants us to think clearly about the realities of heaven and hell, and he wants us to let that have an impact in how we live and what we do. Therefore, there are three things I want us to consider. First, the importance of our eternal destiny and its impact on our daily lives. Second, the importance of hell being a choice and a consequence. And third, the glory of heaven and God's invitation to hope in all things new. These are important ideas. So first, the importance of our eternal destiny and its impact on our daily living. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount not to live like the people of the world. The people of the world are known to be anxious about life, anxious about what they will wear, anxious about what they will eat and drink. Jesus says our Heavenly Father knows that we need these things. He says consider the lilies of the valley. Think of the birds of the air. Therefore, our Heavenly Father will take care of us. We are more important than they. He knows what we need. That's fundamentally what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 26. But in chapter 26, I want to just continue a little further and look at verse 33 through 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own when we think about our eternal destiny and the impact on our daily lives Lewis wants us to camp a little bit on that last phrase of Jesus each day has enough trouble on its own. Lewis wants us to realize and think about what we do each and every day and how important it is in terms of our final destination, what we're really all about, how we're really living. Lewis rightly emphasizes that we make choices every single day. 
Sometimes we make choices without thinking about our eternal destinies and what that means. We think about grand moves in our life. We think about history. We don't really analyze the decisions we make every day. We just kind of move through them with somewhat of an indifference. But choices for good and evil make for small battles. This is true. Yet, they have great effect. I think that's what Jesus is driving at. Don't get your life so caught up in what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what tomorrow's going to be, what the next day is going to be, how your life is going to unfold, because each day has challenges of its own. Lewis says, our choices in each day have great effect. And we should understand that good and evil increases at compound interest. That is why little decisions that you make on one day has infinite importance. The smallest victory today may capture a port in your life that leads to future victories that you would never dream of. Why was Jesus pointing us to be careful for the day that is just before us? We must also know that apparent trivial lusts or anger today could be the loss of a ridge or a port of protection from which the enemy may launch an, an attack against us that otherwise would not have happened. Because there is a deep spiritual dynamic going on here in what Lewis would call Middle Earth. We live in Middle Earth. Heaven is eating away at Middle Earth on one end. On the opposite end, hell is eating away at Middle Earth. And everything we do in this moment, in these days of our lives, are either connected to heaven or hell. Therefore, we must take seriously every moment that is before us. Don't you think that's great advice for us as believers? Take our lives as a whole with all the choices we make, Lewis says, that all the time throughout our lives we are either contributing to the development of our heavenly creature that God has destined us to be or we are contributing to the hellish creature that stands against God's plans and purposes. We are living as creatures that are in harmony with God, with others, and with ultimately ourselves or we are living as creatures in a state of war and hatred with God and others and ultimately ourselves. So does the issue of heaven and hell have any daily bearing on our lives? Because in reality, once we realize that we are eternal creatures, that heaven and hell will be what defines us throughout eternity, there cannot be simple moments 
There cannot be toying with sins at one time, hiding it, and then acting as saints at another. We must know what role we're on, how important these battles are. That is what is concerning and confusing to me about Christians who hide and enjoy and live in sin. A glaring contradiction to the seriousness of the nature of their lives on the way to heaven or hell. Each of us at every moment progresses in one state or the other. In one sense, we are standing for heaven or we're standing for hell. God is gracious and he does work in our lives. We at times find ourselves making the wrong decisions. We at times find ourselves loving sin but realize we're toying with the enemy. We're toying with a deadly outcome. We must long at every moment even in the spots and places of our lives when no one is looking to be on the side of heaven in full devotion to what God is doing so that as heaven eats into this world, we're a part of it. We cannot and must not keep heaven and hell in the background. This is a reality that must impact our lives. Lewis is clear on that. It is a great reminder for us. So the importance of eternal destiny and its impact in our daily living. Second, we need to understand hell as a choice and an action of God. Hell is a horrible place. It's not something we love or want to talk about. But Jesus did say he is in control there. Think of Revelation 1.18. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. This is a comfort for us who trust in Jesus. It is a fear, depending on your relationship with Jesus. Hell is described as a lake of fire. It is to be a place we want to avoid. It is to be a warning to us about our walk. Revelation 20, 13 and 14 does describe hell in a way that, that uh, describe hell, did I say, excuse me. <laughs> does describe hell in a way that is revealing, concerning, scary. It says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The first death is not something any of us are looking towards, forward to. The second death will be final. 
the symbols and imagery and the language in the Bible used to talk about hell, Lewis would say, are any interpretation of those things that does not face the fact of the reality of this place and its horror should be out of court from the beginning. These images should evoke concern and anxiety and fear. I have a friend that I was meeting with for a while who was an atheist who grew up in the church and his atheism is mainly though he's got many arguments mainly built on the idea that there is a hell and how could God send someone to hell and it is in this place and I've had discussions and trying to uh, describe hell and it's what makes hell a very difficult topic um, but Lewis is very helpful in one way. To put it simply, Lewis would ask, is hell God-inflicted or self-inflicted? That's an important question. In other words, are people cast into hell by a vengeful God? Or is hell something that we do to ourselves by remaining on our own self-centered, rebellious course of life? Most of the time, Lewis treats hell as self-inflicted, though that's not the whole package. But I do find that that distinction helpful. So when I was talking to my friend who had a problem with hell, God having a place called hell, that the idea that it's self-inflicted and God-inflicted, both of those were helpful. And I could camp a little bit on that God is not just inflicting hell. Hell is also what we charted our course to do and to be. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, God is the only comfort, uh, God is the only comfort, he is, as, is the only comfort, he is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have ourselves made ourselves enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either a great safety or a great danger according to the way you react to it and we have reacted wrongly so the idea that we are in danger because God is holy and he will cast us into hell is complemented by the fact that we have chosen that road we over and over go our own way so Lewis has said in the problem of pain that the, do the doors of hell are locked on the inside. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Everyone in hell chooses it. When we reject God, he grants our wish and leaves us there.
self-inflicted. While that is self-inflicted, there is an element of God-inflicted as well. That's what makes the topic of hell difficult. Lewis and other places would say that God has hot wrath against sinners. He rejects the modern mythology that God's anger is simply the inevitable uh, happening to us if we behave inappropriately towards the ultimate reality of goodness and truth and immense power. Lewis warns that God is not just a, a live wire that we stumble into. He says that God, rather, is a consuming fire. As Hebrews 12.29 says, He will burn up all that is opposed to Him. And if we are, in essence, opposed and hostile towards God, God will one day burn all that is opposed to Him up. And we could be in that camp. So He does stand against us. But we also stand against him. It's a combination. And it's important that both of these be held together. It's one of the important truths we learn from Lewis. We make choices and God will hold us accountable. This is a truth we must hang on to. Must continue to be real. So hell has two characteristics. Hell is a choice, and it is an action of God. Third thing we learn from Lewis, he reminds us of heaven and God's invitation to hope in all things new. And, and really, if I, I would put the most emphasis and the most weight on this, not because the topic of hell isn't necessary, it is, not because it's hard to talk about hell and it's good to talk about heaven, They are counterbalanced in a sense. They are opposites. They're not asymmetrical. Hell is almost the the smallest and loneliest and the most insignificant place you could go. Whereas heaven is not opposite, asymmetrical, is like the glorious, the biggest, the most real, the most solid place you could go. Lewis in The Great Divorce describes hell, the, in, the, in, the totality of hell, as captured in a small crack in heaven. Whereas you stand up and look around in the vast expanse of the real heaven that is more real than anything you've ever experienced. Heaven is where we long to go. It is the over-the-top fulfillment of our every longing and our every desire. It is what God has placed in our hearts. And actually, we run around in this world chasing after trinkets, which I think are just sparks, just like signs of heaven. And we run around there and we see them like a great mountainside out in the Rockies with a a lake inside or, you know, the pictures of beautiful scenery that you get on your 
computer screen when you open it up that I never get to go to, but uh, sure pretty. Uh, or the joys of having kids and family and relationship. All of those things are sparks and tastes. Not of this world. That's where we make our mistake. We say, oh, we've got to get more of that. There's, there, there's some of that stuff here. Let's get it. Let's hang on to it. Let's bring it together. We're gonna, and God is saying, no, these are just tastes. The reality is coming. I will make heaven more glorious than you can imagine. It will be reality of reality. Far beyond, more expansive than you can imagine. Real life. All we get here are tastes, yet we orientate our whole lives around these little tastes. Yet God is holding out the prospect that he wants to give us what he made us to receive when he made us at the first in creation. It has been totally marred. And everything we feel and experience and taste here is only a margin of what he had planned. And we're headed towards that. I love this quote from Lewis. It says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven enough or at all. But more often, as I think of it, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It's a profound statement. It takes a little bit of thinking. As I said, you know, it's hard to follow Lewis, but what he's saying is all of the longings, all of the good desires, all of the joys, all of the satisfactions that we have tasted here will only be tastes here. That the fullness is coming. That is the glory of heaven. And Lewis captures it over and over in his books. Read the last, the, the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia. Read the end of Screwtape Letters when the person realizes that life is over and they're transitioning into real life. And all of the darkness and all the scales of this world fall off. Oh, that we would be captivated by all things new that God is bringing about. And oh, that we would be saying, come, come, taste and see the Lord is good. The abundance of his grace is overwhelming. But we're stuck in this vision of the world. We're in Middle Earth, not realizing heaven's eating it up on one end, hell on the other. And one day, Heaven's taking over. Lewis calls this a longing for our home. We should long for our home. He reminds us, like Hebrews 13.4, we do not have an enduring city in this world. But we are looking for the city that is to come. In the end, our imaginations fail us. 
however horrible hell might be, we cannot out-describe it. However glorious heaven might be, we can't exaggerate it too much. Glorious prospects lay before us, and Christ has beckoned us to come, come to him and receive life, life like you would never imagine. You, believer, me, believer, we living each and every day knowing the hope of heaven, walking in step with Christ our Savior, knowing that his kingdom is marching forward and the glorious day is coming. Or are you an unbeliever? You've never trusted Christ. Why delay? The prospects are so abundant. The offer is so immense and intense. Trust Christ today. Jesus is the ultimate answer. We cannot ignore him and live. We must see that he is at work and we must be at work with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace and love and power and might and joy and, lo- and, and abundance and glory. And Lord, that you offer that life to us. You have made that life possible through the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we can stand with a hope, a hope that is sure, a hope that is solid, because the real world is coming. Help us to set our hearts, our longings, our intentions on your kingdom, your will in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together and sing.